Society doesn't run on money, it runs on power and greedy people fighting for it. Traditionally, societal values have placed hierarchical top-down decision-making as the best way to control. But as put in the opening of Lord of the Rings, the world is changed. Controlling chaos in a hyper-connected digital world doesn't work using this outdated old way of thinking anymore. A new form of power has emerged. Here is author Henry Timms to explain. New power is this idea of the ability to harness the energy of the connected crowd. Today, I'm joined with Liam Cahill, a strategic system thinker and advisor for the National Health Service and many health tech organizations. There is a law of systems thinking that systems are highly resistant. And the harder you push, the harder the system pushes back. In this episode, we discuss influence and disruption within the NHS, with a focus on understanding the dynamics between old and new power. We talk about the very controversial £330 million contract that was awarded to Palantir by the NHS. Having more data and technology around management of your backlog in its entirety is clearly an obviously good thing to do. It sounds kind of obvious, okay, we should use some technology to help us analyse our waiting list and then organise ourselves. Nobody really knows what's going on. And that stinks of old power mechanics, right? I begin this episode by asking Liam whether it's good or bad to be a disruptor. I hope you enjoy. As we're saying, the structure is changing and many health tech founders do need to adapt to that structure and understand that that influence is also changing. And you, you talk a little bit about disruption in the NHS and a need to be empathetic and inclusive. Mm. And I think many founders, health tech founders, think that being disruptive is a good thing and it means almost taking down the system. So I'm gonna ask you this question, which is, do you think being a disruptor is good or bad and what are some of the bad or good things about it? <laughs> uh -huh. So there's nuance in this question, right? So firstly, if you go to the Oxford Dictionary, there are two definitions of disruptive, right? The first one is anarchy, people who take something apart, they break it, they stop it, they disrupt it, like the same way that if you said traffic was disrupted, you wouldn't think it was a good thing. On the other hand, there is an economist called Joseph Schumpeter from the 30s who came along with the idea of economic disruption. And what that is, is a healthy turnover, the application of technology to make sure that we're always advancing using that at this time. And I think often when we talk to people about disruption, there's three responses, right? The one, they'll understand it and really understand what I'm talking about here. It's quite few of them. Two, there'll be people who are like, ooh, you know, let's not upset the apple cart. And then you get the other ones who kind of, yeah, let's disrupt the system, right? And I would put sometimes a lot of the health tech disruptors or self-titled health tech disruptors in that third category. It's very interesting when you get into the detail of how they're thinking about disrupting. We live in a disruptive age, right? If we look at the people who set the narrative around the application of technology, whether that's Musk or whether that's the leaders of Microsoft or Google or Apple or anything like that, we have this, this kind of like firebrand view of disruption. But the reality is, and I say this from the position of building a disruptive organization in the NHS, which positively changed parts of the NHS that stopped functioning because we replaced it with something else, using technology, using better ways of working, using a very different dynamic and approach. We did it from the inside. So what we did is we went in, we tried to work out how the system fit, and then we kept ratcheting up what we did until it became something that was different. But when it comes to applying technology, someone who isn't in the NHS, who doesn't really know it, who comes and says, we're going to disrupt the NHS, it kind of it kind of grates on me because what that says to me is I don't understand the complexity of the system. 
I think I can do it from the outside. I think that I can spark a paradigm shift from my position outside of something which is inherently very complex. And so for me, good disruption looks like this. Getting into a system, starting with something that is safe, with a good vision, with a good narrative around how you're looking to transform, but meeting them where they are and then doing something to help ratchet up to something which could truly be disruptive and transformative. Applying technology in an empathetic way. Because there is a law of systems thinking that systems are highly resistant. And the harder you push, the harder the system pushes back. So systems thinking teaches us that you can't change a system from the outside and you can't change it by pushing in it, particularly if you're not in it. And I think that's where we kind of go wrong. And so, yeah, it's, it's a complex picture, but what I would love to see is a more of a narrative around, we're going to get into a system. We're going to bring this new philosophy. We're going to try and change the mindset. We're going to try and role model some of these new power dynamics and ideas and approaches from a bottom up way. How can we empower clinicians more and start to bring this in, in a way that suddenly people go, wow, that was a real change in three to four years time. And I think that's how we actually disrupt a complex system like health and social care. I think the leaders at the top aren't any better than these hot-headed disruptors that are coming in because I don't think, in my experiences, that the leaders at the top, similarly to the hot-headed disruptors, don't fully understand the system and don't empathetically acknowledge or listen to the voices on the ground. And someone who I really admire and look up to is Helen Bevan. She's one of the strategic advisors for NHS Horizons. She talks about new power and matching it with old power and we look towards in this new power looking for super connectors on the ground with influence to understand the problem and have a voice and so Mm. the question i'm getting at is how can we merge the two new power and old power to bring about meaningful change in the nhs so i'm really glad that you've answered this question and i absolutely love new power like it really changed my thinking around five years ago and i think there's a number of different philosophies that are coming to the fore that are talking about the dynamics of how our society is going to change as we progress into a more digital society and like at the top level i think we we, we've been in an industrial society for a long time where we've got very newtonian rules and the newtonian rules in society basically says that the view of the system is that people at the top decide mechanisms and it goes down towards management and everything gets broken up into its component parts and that is going to achieve great things new power says Actually, that's the thing that's holding us back in a more rhizomatic or network age. And so the new power dynamics are around how do we create super users? How do we get everybody using tools and creating digital and starting to make something happen? How do we get out of the way and stop blocking them from these things and hoarding information in little pockets? In the past, we would have tried to kind of contain everything so it was manageable. But now new power says that we have to recognize that things are unmanageable and that we need to have faith in the network which is the dominant power of the internet and society and as a result we need to harness that rather than controlling it so it takes us away from a control to experimentation from hierarchies to networks and to answer your question how do we blend them i think this is a really difficult question because what we're talking about is two inherently dichotomous and different philosophies right a good example i use in organizations is around agile and so agile principles are we go in we're close to the user risk is when we move away from proximity to the user we don't spend all our time planning we respond to what their needs are we create personas we we 
break everything down into bite and we experiment, right? We do it as we go along. And organizations have been putting Agile in as the response to everything. And yet they don't change their organizational philosophy. So they still want everything answered in advance. They still want all of the old power mechanics. And what happens is it crushes the new power thing until they go, well, Agile's rubbish. It doesn't, didn't change anything. And what they didn't do is change their their paradigm about how we should be thinking about complexity. We're not just going to have a new power system overnight. So firstly, I think we need to acknowledge they're inherently different. We can't have everybody in icebergs of ignorance making decisions and have empowered, enabled clinicians, people in the community, patients, everybody, like as super users becoming part of this story. It has to be one or the other. But what we can do is create containable good examples in safe ways. There's a wonderful organization called Bertorg. There's a really great example, which is from the Netherlands. And what they did is they created a very much a new power structure, independent community teams who don't have a remit. They don't have targets. They don't have things they have to do. They can do whatever they want and their role is greater. They have the best outcomes in the world. They have the happiest staff satisfaction in the world. All of the metrics that we would measure good care by They have the best in the world, not marginally, but significantly, right? And so I think if we can find places and ways where we can create pockets of this and learn from it and be inspired by it in the system. And so I think this is what my work is. So I am brought into organizations as an example, and I go in and I help to safely run experiments, pushing my job is to work with the executive to push back all of the old power shit that starts to crush innovation and I try to hold the boundary with the permission of the executive and try to, you know, help the, the people in the organizations live those ways. Now, that's containerizing it. That's probably the best blend that we can get. But I don't think they can sit alongside each other side by side because they're inherently different philosophies. And I think, to be honest, this is one of the biggest questions for the National Health Service, right? Like, how do we move away from institutionalism and how do we devolve down and empower people? Because right now, we're not doing it and we're not seeing great results as a consequence yeah it's interesting that that word empowerment there i think when you you think of leaders you expose a bad leader by saying that is a powerful leader actually you want a leader to empower from Mm. the ground up a lot of health tech companies are probably thinking how can i seamlessly integrate and slot into this system without Mm. trying to bend and break it and instead kind of leverage know the, the knowings of the system leverage the knowings of old power versus new power to mm. find the loopholes and gaps to fit in and you teach uh, nhs providers to focus on purpose empowerment experimentation transparency and networks to avoid killing innovation and so mm. my question to you is so how can that understanding be useful for those health tech companies so there's two sides of this coin i think um and it's a really great observation and question, by the way. I think a lot of this talk is about power, right? With empower, power, like we're talking about what power a health tech company has, right? The reality is, is that if a health tech company comes in and starts offering something that is culturally dichotomous to how the NHS works, it will be seen as risk. Nobody will want to buy it. And so on that end of the scale, I think, you know, I wouldn't advise that at all. We've got to meet them where they are. At the same time, health tech organizations are often new power entities. They work in very different ways to what I see in the NHS. And there's a lot that they can bring in terms of approaches and ideas and the philosophy of how they're designing technology, which is which would be hugely valuable for the National Health Service. I wish the health, National Health Service would listen and learn from them a little bit more. But 
What I'd say is, the first thing is, you can't change anything from the outside and you've got to get in. So the first most important thing is, try and really understand what the environment is as it is. You know, before I go and do any experimentation or change work, I have to understand what the political mechanics are. I ask very specific cultural questions, you know, and obviously I've got a different job. I'm not selling a piece of health technology into the, the NHS. I am, I, I advise and I get brought in to correct trouble, good trouble, right? So it's a different circumstance. And so for me, like, you know, when I sit down with a health tech company, we try to look at the strategy to meet them, the health, the, the NHS organs where they, where they are. We try to like proactively mitigate and alleviate concerns about risk or compliance and stuff like that. We do everything to deal with the existing gateway mechanisms that we can't control. And then if we get in, we work with them to build a vision around how we can really change the area that they're in. And if we build up that trust and that partnership and we're doing it in a way that's listening to them, that that's how we can start to be able to get that. So I think it is always a long game. There's recently been a case in the news which has gotten a lot of criticism, a lot of back, backlash. I can guess what this and might that, be. <laughs> <laughs> and that is, of course, the £330 million seven-year contract deal between NHS and Palantir to develop a federated data platform. And I wanted to talk about this case because I think it will be interesting to discuss the dynamics between the old power and new power, specifically for this case, because it's faced a lot of criticism. It, mm. it, the decision is somewhat steeped in bureaucracy, right? And so I wanted to talk about it and talk about what we can potentially learn from it. So I think firstly, Palantir is an agile opportunistic company that can work very quickly like clearly as a, as a company they are not like you know they're not the same as kind of like some of the EHRs and EPR providers that are like basically just holding on to us in the past you know they are creating mechanisms that could theoretically actually enable and allow some of the things we'd want to see like you know if for example they the work with the FDP and Palantir really leads towards an opening up of data and changing this held incumbent control over data that's happening at the moment and halting so much progress in health tech, then great. Um, I think also their approaches that they took at being COVID and coming in and doing some things were very opportunistic. And you can't fault their tenacity. You can't fault the campaign they've run and the fact that they've won this. However... <laughs> I was waiting for that, however. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, speak, I speak to a lot of people who are very close to this thing on lots of different sides of the coin and quite knowledgeable. The first thing is, is that nobody really knows what's going on. And that stinks of old power mechanics, right? This is all, you know, everybody knew that Palantir was going to win it. Like, actually, you know, the, um, the uh, Black Pair and Eclipse kind of pirate ship that kind of came in and tried to win it was almost like a new power approach that kind of got kicked down because they were just coming together trying to do something in a different way which would have been really interesting but realistically everybody knew palantir was going to get it like there wasn't really any question about that but the reality is is that palantir have big links with security services lots of links with politicians and if you look at how this has played out it's very difficult to say that this hasn't been done with old power mechanics. Backroom discussions, quiet deals. And I'm sure everybody in HS England who's run it has followed due process and so on. But realistically, I think this doesn't 
doesn't whilst they've probably been pretty agile in how they've dealt with it it doesn't strike me as a new power movement like we've been talking about before there's been a release recently about what they're planning to do it for and everyone's been like oh finally we know what what the plan is and i think actually that is you know given we're looking at like information hoarded to transparency it's very much down the hoarded so i think if you were to grade this as an observer on the old power versus new power mechanics i'd say it's very very much down that line mm. But again, let me challenge this. Let me challenge yeah, this. So you, you, you talk about um, the old power mechanics and kind of mm-hmm. f- allegedly, we obviously, d- neither of us know, but uh, these kind of backroom de- deals that were happening, hush, hush, quiet, and then all of a sudden Palantir wins. But I will challenge this and say that before that, Palantir took somewhat of a new power approach and they gained the trust of these senior government officials during the pandemic. They were a company that ca- came in and played a pivotal role in helping helping um the, obviously the vaccination program the allocation of the the covid resources as well as the rollout of the country's vaccination program so they'd already demonstrated their worth they somewhat empowered um the nhs and transformed them showed them a solution that they could fix and then demonstrated more health contracts including the the fdp what i'm getting at is you could argue that that was somewhat a new power approach it it would be great it'd be great to watch to watch the how palantir on the fdp with with you know insiders like you get in these documentaries talking about how it went down because the fact it's difficult you know it's difficult to know it's it's very difficult to kind of comment on this but i think if we take the new power values right so informal opt-in decision making self-organization networking governance this is a central program open source collaboration crowd wisdom and sharing right I haven't seen any voices of local organisations in this. I haven't seen any voices of clinicians in this. I haven't seen any voices of local communities in this. Everybody else who's not in the room has, I, I don't think has been able to really contribute to this. Radical transparency. Well, we don't know what's going on. We've got no idea about this. So I think we can pretty much grade that there hasn't been radical transparency. And, you know, in the old power one around discretion, confidentiality, separation between public and private spheres. Well, you know, it's been it's all been very quiet and i think you know the optimist in me thinks that some very good reasons around using this to address some of the other incumbent situations and i do have my fingers crossed that this has been done for all the right reasons do it yourself maker culture like who's going to get this data who's going to do stuff is it all going to go to central teams or is everybody going to you know in the nhs going to be empowered by this what's the philosophy around this and how has it been done but to me yeah. i think it's max more of old power than new power I think another concern is obviously with this Palantir mm. contract is the fact that there's private NHS data going to potentially a, a US company. And mm. the, there's been reassurance that the, that Palantir is providing a piece of software to the, allow the data to be used more effectively. And th- there's been, to address those concerns, the NHS have said that they, I, I don't know the exact quote, but it's something around they forbid any use in the contract. It says that it forbids any use of patient data for commercial gain. And so you could argue, yeah, somewhat transparency there. Um, but yeah, still not enough done. So what can we learn from this whole situation? And what can health tech founders learn? What can any NHS providers learn? What can we learn? <laughs> yeah. Other than facetiously saying, like, get a tech billionaire onto your co-founder team who (laughs) you know (laughs) of course (laughs) um, who has huge amounts of political power that they can use to speak to the current administration and all of that kind of stuff right so um you know other than that i think there's definitely lessons to learn like i think the key lesson for me and actually like like 
I'd rather talk about AccuRx than Palantir because I think there's a similar kind of story right in this. Like if we look at AccuRx, right, they responded very quickly to offer something that was needed during the uh, pandemic. The same as what Palantir did, right? They got in, they proliferated, they offered value and they offered value for little to like next to nothing, if not free, right? Mm. Same as Palantir did. As a result of things, they have now been in a position where they are able to positively expand, get in the room. Like, you know, I, I do not consider AccuRx and the team at AccuRx to be like a new power organization. I consider them, sorry, an old power organization. I very much consider them to be a new power organization. That wasn't a Freudian slip there. I do think they're a new power organization. <laughs> um, but actually what you can see is that that has allowed them to be straight through the door in terms of doing stuff with the NHS app and working with trust and starting to bring things together and doing other pieces of work, which I think is, so it's interesting that, there's lots of lessons that, organize, that organizations could learn from the same story on AQRX, but because it's got the Palantir controversy around it, I even myself, even though I'd say there's lots of parity between them, would feel quite reluctant to learn lessons from it. So like, I think the biggest, the biggest lesson that I would take from Palantir and that I would take from AQRX and some of the other things that really shifted when we had a big opportunity was you've got to have that flexibility and readiness for that big opportunity. Like right now with my clients, I'm saying we have an election coming up. We've been told where they're going to look in the major condition strategy. We need to be looking and ready for if something comes out, some short term political kind of, you know, sort of vote winning uh, pocket of money. We need to be thinking in advance about being able to go for that in 24 hours. And I think in the NHS, Things take bloody ages, but sometimes when we have transitions, we can learn a lot from that. And whilst proact proactively, if you're sat in your room with your founders and going, right, we need to be ready for a transition. It's a, it's a difficult strategy to pitch to your investors, right? Generally, I have two strategies I'm talking about in parallel with the clients I'm working with. One is the good getting the system, leverage it, meet them where they are, what we were talking about before. The other one is the organizations I'm working with. We have more readiness because we're looking at the three months ahead and saying, what could happen that we could find that opportunity to? And so, yeah, like I think that for me is probably one of the biggest lessons. Liam, as we close up, it's been my pleasure having you on the podcast and you are extremely successful if you don't want to admit it. And so my, <laughs> my last question, my, my last question is just around what can individuals learn from you? Any systems, seeing as you love talking about systems, any systems and processes that you've built in your life that have helped you accomplish and get to where you are today? Oh. All right. It's different values of success, right? So I don't know. I've been pondering upon this a lot recently because I actually downgraded my business a couple. Of, I, I built a very successful organization five years ago and the time between me doing that then and now is. But like, to be totally honest, I spent the last couple of years thinking about micro and macro success, right? Like what I'm trying to do is do the change that I can, work towards the bigger picture that I'm trying to do. But to be honest, I've got a young son and actually my measure of success at the moment is I don't want to do my bigger mission at the expense of train you know like role modeling and helping a little human to be a great member of society in the next round so to be honest like it's difficult because you know i toil with myself that i could you know if i if i just wholly focused on this i could be more and more successful in doing the things that i really want to see change so professionally what i would say is understanding complexity is a really important thing empathy and just being a nice human is great serendipity comes from just doing favors for people and just like not asking for things back and i do i do really believe that 
just being a just trying to be a kind human and doing that is just it, it just it's just the right way to do things um but i also think that trying to really get in and understand systems and complexity gives you superpowers i'm not saying i've got superpowers but i'm saying that some of the <laughs> things that i've learned over time in systems thinking and design thinking and participatory practice and understanding bias and research techniques and all of these kind of things has really helped me how to have a framework to counter some of the things that maybe I'm not so good at. And I think actually that has really helped me in the, all of the things that I do. Um, and also being vulnerable, just trying to do stuff and put it out in the world and try and not spend too long worrying about how people are going to feel. Yeah, amazing. Liam, it's been my pleasure having you on the podcast. Oh, it's been lovely to join you. Thanks for getting to the end of the episode. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes and subscribing on YouTube. It really helps the channel to grow and means the world to me. Until next time and see you soon.